0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, we started the book of Acts last fall. Now, it seems like a lifetime ago. I don't know if you guys remember this, but when we started the book of Acts initially, we started it with the the thought and the heart that we were going to track right along with Philippi Uh, and sam as they they launched out into grants pass and started the church there that we have an opportunity to kind of bounce back and forth and we've been able to do some of that along the way but doesn't it feel like we've been in the book of acts even longer than that (laughs) of course this was before the world shut down right this is before everything that has transpired in our church has happened well, we started the Book of Acts last fall, and we've spent our time since then working our way through the story of the birth of the church. Now, during our time, we've, we've encountered uh, various characters like Luke and Peter and James and Stephen and Paul and others whose names are mentioned on the pages of the Book of Acts. And these key people in the history of the church's beginning, they, they played a vital role in everything that was happening in the church for God's glory. And each of them really deserves a a sort of character study of their own. We've been able to do some of that on our way through the book of Acts as well. But I, I think that the book of Acts, and really of the Bible itself, are not the stories of mere mortals. They are not the stories of just men. They are the story of God. They're the record of what God has been doing since before the foundations of the world. What he's been doing to work on behalf of mankind and to complete his plan of redemption in the world. So as as we close the book of Acts, um, I want to take a moment to to review the, the things that we've learned about God's work. I want us to see... The beautiful and the the not-so-beautiful imperfections of his creatures and the ways in which he works through them rather than around them. How faithful he is. I, I want us to see this because encapsulated in the story of God is the story of the redemption of mankind. It's the story of his people enfolded into God's plan of redemption is the beautiful grace of God at work in the brokenness of humanity and in the brokenness of the church. I want us to see that loving God also means loving what he does in and through his people. So we're going to do a little flyover over the book of Acts to, to see what we've learned. But I want to start before the book of Acts and just kind of again back up a little bit, take a a larger, broader overview over the story and where the book of Acts fits into the story of redemption in the first place. So, ever since the sin of Adam and Eve, humanity has been on a crash course with their Creator. Uh, The the rebellion that took place in the Garden of Eden, and everything that followed, all the, the flurry of consequence that was unleashed in the world after that is all a part of the story of God. And, and, and in that, we, it starts with this idea of lostness. Now, lostness is an interesting thing to think about. Just this last week, I was listening to a, an audio book by Dallas Willard and, and he was talking about lostness and he, one of the things that he said that was so interesting to me is that you know uh, usually when we talk about lostness we, we talk about it in terms of its final state like when a person ends up in hell that's what we think about when we talk about people being lost but that's not usually how the Bible discusses it it does talk about those things but lostness is an ongoing activity that ultimately culminates in hell. Lostness can happen a long time before that. Now, to be fair, I have been lost before. Uh, I do great in the woods. You get me out in the woods, I can do a, a fantastic job navigating. But put me in a city, and I will get turned around with, I, I'm looking for landmarks, and I'm like looking for, you know, I didn't pay attention to street signs, things like that. So I'm old enough that I remember a time before smartphones and GPSs. And so we would have to like buy a map. And I can remember early on in marriage having to navigate Southern California with my brand new wife and us having very heated debates about which was the correct way to take and why she didn't tell me to turn until after the off-ramp and she was supposed to be holding the map and we would go back and forth but the thing that was striking to me is that a lot of times I was lost and didn't know it usually my wife knew I was lost before I did that's the reality of it you see lostness is not just about the final destination it's about what happens before that when you get off course and you begin to meander and you begin to wander. In the same way that a husband may not know that he is lost as he seeks to navigate the streets of a large city, his awareness of his lostness may not occur until he ends up at a dead-end street. In that same way, people throughout the world right now are lost. And that started with Adam and Eve in the garden. There was a disconnection from God that took place, a spiritual separation that took place as the consequence of sin. And humanity is lost and wandering. They're not even aware of their disconnection from God. They've they've fancied themselves, in fact, the maker of gods rather than God being the maker of them. But God has been promising since day one. That he would turn it all around. So, From the very moment that that mankind entered into lostness, God made this promise. I'm not going to leave it this way. The garden that was started here will be completed in eternity. What I called you to do here will be completed in eternity. And I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to rescue you through my son. I'm going to establish my kingdom. And we're going to deal with your sin. And so he promised, he promised that he would still build the garden kingdom that, and, and that he would send a son by the seed of a woman and that he would establish this kingdom and take away their sin. And he has promised to crush the enemy who drew them into their fallen condition in the first place. And so as you fast forward through the book of the Old Testament, what you see is that God has been building a kingdom. Now, the kingdoms of the earth were divided at the Tower of Babel and there was this great separation that took place, but God chose, elected a kingdom through Abraham that he might build a people unto himself and that through Abraham that the coming kingdom, the final kingdom, would finally be established. Now the people that he chose were not all followers of God. The people that he chose sometimes rebelled against God and the history of Israel unfolds in the Old Testament to tell us that even if you are chosen to be used by God, to be a representative kingdom, you can still muck it up through terrible choices. That God will still bring discipline to those that he loves. And so at the end of the Old Testament there's this period of silence and for 400 years there is no prophet that is really speaking into human history. And so then the book of Luke which is Acts part 1, if you will. The book of Luke, the gospel of Luke opens up with the story of God finally speaking again. And God comes to a man who is in the service of the temple to tell him that he will have a son. And that this son will be the forerunner. He will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he will be the one who precedes, who casts the message about the coming king that God has always promised. Then after that follows the birth of Jesus. That comes next in the narrative so that Luke can make the tie-in that Jesus and the Elijah-like John the Baptizer were linked in the plan of God, and Jesus is born of the seed of a woman without a human father, just like God prophesied to Adam and Eve after their sin in the garden. Then comes this interlude uh, uh, about two experiences from Jesus' childhood, one in which Jesus is carried into the temple to be dedicated to the Lord and and somebody prophesies, two different people prophesy over Jesus and say, this is the, the, the hope of Israel. This is the one that we've all been hoping for. This is the king. This is the Messiah. This is it. The kingdom is finally here. Another story from Jesus' childhood where where at 12 years of age when he should be beginning to learn an apprentice under Joseph and take on his father's business, what happens is they find him in the temple and he's been lost to them for a few days. They finally find him and the, the parents rebuke Jesus and say, where were you? We were worried. We searched all over for you. And he said, hey, didn't you know? I'm supposed to be in my father's house learning his business. Did you know that I was, that's what I was supposed to be doing? And then from that point forward, Luke and most of the gospel writers skip ahead to the life and ministry of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And they're, they're wanting us to see something about this reality. John comes on the scene and immediately starts preaching about the kingdom of God. I love what it says in the message. Regarding John's word, it says, "But John intervened. He says, "I'm baptizing you here in the river, but the main character in this drama, to whom I am a mere stage hand, will ignite the kingdom of life, a fire, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He is going to clean house, make a clean sweep of your life. He'll place everything true in its proper place." before God and everything false he'll put out with the trash to be burned (laughs) and that is exactly what Jesus began to do and teach we see a, a brief story of him having direct conflict with Satan with the enemy and triumphing where Adam and Eve failed in their temptation Jesus succeeds where Israel failed in its temptation Jesus succeeds And as we look at the story of Jesus and his teaching about the kingdom and his living it out among the disciples, for the Jewish audience of that day, the story of Jesus is rich with meaning. I mean, let's think about this from their perspective for a moment. Their knowledge of the Old Testament, of the law, of the prophets, of the Psalms, their knowledge of that has informed their understanding of what this coming kingdom is even supposed to look like in the first place. And so they 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 think back and they say, okay, well, what, what is necessary for the, the Messiah, for the kingdom to come into being, for it to be in place? Well, Elijah is prophesied to precede the Messiah. When John the Baptist fills that role. The, the Messiah is supposed to be born of the seed of a woman with that's exactly what we see in the, the life of Jesus in his supernatural birth the king will come from the lineage of David and they can look at the genealogy of, of both Mary his, his biological mother and his stepfather Joseph and, and see lines that go all the way back to David in those two places there will be a prophetic proclamation of the kingdom and of the king And Elijah comes as a voice crying out in the wilderness. God separated Israel to build a kingdom, but Israel failed their test in the desert as Moses did. But Jesus passes the test. Israel is formed. God's kingdom is begun with 12 patriarchs. Jesus chooses for himself 12 apostles. Israel, the failed kingdom, has a corrupt priesthood that no longer cares for the people or obeys God. But but Jesus, the king of the kingdom, comes on the scene and demonstrates care for God's people. Israel fell into demonic worship and idolatry that brought judgment upon them. But Jesus comes freeing those who are being oppressed and held captive by demons. We see over and over again in the life and in the ministry and in the events of Jesus' life a rich fulfillment of everything that was anticipated in the kingdom. And so for these disciples, they say the kingdom is here. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 10 and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Moses told the assembly and the word for assembly there in the Greek is ecclesia. It's the same word that is used for church in the New Testament. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Moses calls the assembly to come together in order to rehearse their founding as God's covenant people, as God's covenant kingdom. And this took place on the day of Pentecost, or the anniversary of the giving of the law. And in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says that he's going to build a new assembly, a new ecclesia, not on the foundation of the old covenant law, but on the foundation of the profession of faith that Peter made, that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, the disciples would have understood this to mean then, that Jesus the Messiah is building a new assembly, a new ecclesia, a new gathering. There's all these events, like when, when Moses went up Onto Mount Sinai and he gets a glory tan there And, and all of Israel thought, man, that is a wonderful thing. But then the disciples go up on a mountain with Jesus and the glory is not being absorbed by him from the outside, but it is bursting forth from him on the inside. Israel was rebuked and sent into captivity for their lack of justice. But Jesus demonstrates the justice of God by his care for the poor, for the widow, for the children, for the sick, for the orphan. Israel had a corrupt temple. Jesus comes in and he cleanses the temple. And he attempts to set worship right in his father's house and to make it once again a house of prayer. The prophets told of miraculous realities. That in the coming kingdom, when the Messiah finally comes and rules and reigns, that the land would flow with wine and food. That everybody, they they could buy milk and bread without money, without price. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he turns water into wine. He multiplies bread and fishes. He heals the sick. He cures leprosy. He opens the eyes of the blind. He causes the lame to walk. And he even causes the dead to be raised. This is so impactful. Remember, even John the Baptist at one point goes, Okay, so are you it? Are you the Messiah? Jesus sends word back to John. He says, just tell him what you're saying. Look, the prophecies of the Old Testament are happening. The the poor have the gospel preached to them. The sick are being healed. The blind's eyes are being opened. Each one of these were fulfillments of the words of the prophets that foretold the details of the messianic reign. Add to that that the primary teaching of Jesus is all about the kingdom. He says, this is what my kingdom looks like. He says it's like a sower who goes out to sow. Or he says it's like a, a tree. That's, or it's like a seed that's a, a small seed that grows up into a giant tree. He gives all these parables, all these teachings about what the kingdom looks like and how justice is dispensed within the kingdom. And he talks about the kingdom continuously. There would be no doubt in the minds of the Jewish reader that Jesus uniquely checks all the boxes of the messianic king. That God had promised. But then, the story of Jesus, Acts part 1, the Gospel of Luke, takes a crazy turn. Because the very people who are supposed to receive the Messiah King, Jesus, and and enjoy the benefits of the kingdom, kill the king. This is like a sudden left turn. Turn in the story of Jesus. Like, what's going to happen now? The people killed the king of the kingdom. It's tragic. It's unsettling. The audience that first hears this, first thinks about this, they go, well, I don't know what that was then. To the disciples, they were despondent. Like, okay, not only is our friend dead, but what about this kingdom? Like, we put as Mitch said, all of our eggs in one basket. We left our jobs, we left our families, and we went and followed you, believing that this kingdom would be the reality. Then all of a sudden, surprise! He's back. He emerges from a tomb where he's been dead for three days and is raised again to life. And at that moment then, when the disciples see him, they realize that this kingdom is no ordinary kingdom. It was already fantastical. It was already a place where the sick are healed and the dead are raised and the blind see. It was already a place that restored the land and caused it to flow with, with wine and bread and s- sustenance for all. It was already amazing to see dead people raised but the king raised himself from the dead so in their minds it's like okay <laughs> all right here we go this is the moment so do we gather an army is, is, is this is it now is this the moment where you're going to restore the kingdom and this is exactly where the book of acts picks up Acts chapter 1, in the very first few verses, you, you, you read the words of Luke, he says this. In the first book, talking about Acts part 1, or the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Do you hear that? Everything that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He represented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about, here it is, listen, speaking about the kingdom of God. When Jesus comes back, the disciples are hearing him talk about the kingdom of God. Luke sets the tone for Acts by declaring that everything that Jesus began to do and to teach is about to be continued now through what unfolds in the following chapters of the book of Acts. His historical memoir of the church. Jesus' life and his teaching was just the beginning of the kingdom. Now, and in, in verses 6 through 11 in the first chapter, notice here what happens. So when they had come together, they asked him, now Jesus is with his disciples on, on uh, the, the Mount of Ascension. And they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Just a quick little side note, lots of people get hung up on the timing of Jesus' return. Jesus said in in the Gospel of Matthew, He said, no man knows the day or the hour. Not the angels in heaven, not even the Son, the second member of the Trinity. He doesn't know the day or the hour for His return. Return. To which a lot of people who get very hung up in this area of understanding prophecy say, well, yeah, you can't know the day or the hour, but you can know the times or the seasons. But right here in the book of Acts, notice what is said. He says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You don't get to know when it's going to happen. Just live in expectancy. Just, just live in expectancy. He says, but... This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So listen, why are you standing here looking up at the sky? Mouths open. Go get busy. He gave you work to do. Like he, You'll know when he's coming back. <laughs> he's coming back the same way that he left. You're going to get it. You'll see it. Jesus put it this way. He says... Hey, like lightning shines from the east to the west in the sky you're going to know the time of the return when jesus comes back it's not going to be a secret so you've got work to do he says now go go do what he said go wait for the promise of the holy spirit now notice a few things the immediate question that the disciples pose to jesus and Jesus responds, so, so is this it, Jesus? Is this the kingdom? Is, is now the time where we, we, we build an army, we take over Jerusalem and then spread out into the world and we become the biggest kingdom on the earth? Is this, is this that moment, Jesus? He says, you don't get to know. Don't worry about the timing. That belongs to the Father, but you have work to do. We're going to need you to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you might have power for all that I've called you to. And starting from Jerusalem moving to Judea, on into Samaria, and then off into the ends of the earth, you are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and sent to be my witnesses. Now in the middle of that, the disciples have in their back of their minds, okay, so... This isn't the kingdom necessarily that I thought. I, I, apparently, the king, as he ascends, is now taking his throne in heaven. Pause here for just a moment, because I don't, I don't want you to miss this. This was, this was like a huge revelation to me this week. Not that it's something I haven't thought about before, but, but the implications of what it means. When Jesus ascends to the throne for the first time in eternity there is a human body occupying the throne of God. Think about that. Up until the incarnation, Jesus has always eternally existed in fellowship amongst the Trinity. But in the incarnation, Jesus added to himself a human nature which became an eternal and permanent change. And now in a human body the second member of the Trinity ascends from earth tying what is mortal to that which is immortal. And the throne of heaven has never since the foundations of the earth been occupied by anything but pure deity. And now the angels are staring at a human face in the divine Son of God. (laughs) Oh, the mystery they must feel. Like this? (laughs) What? You made yourself like the dirt? You remember when it was just dirt and you just just breathed into it? Now? You're going to permanently remain the living dirt on the throne. It's an incredible moment. The ascension is the enthronement of Jesus. And in the middle of this the disciples are processing, they're thinking about okay, this, we know who the king is, we know where the king is. He's on the throne. And we know what the king has told us to do to go and build this kingdom. And it starts right here in Jerusalem. But how? How is this going to happen? What does this look like? They have no idea. No real understanding. So they're gathered together in an upper room. They're gathered together on the day of Pentecost, which in Jewish history is the equivalent of the 4th of July sort of season. It's Passover represented the, their deliverance from Egypt, and then the giving of the law 50 days later, later at Pentecost and the feast of, of uh, first fruits. And so they're they're in Jerusalem. Lots of travelers from lots of places are also in Jerusalem with them, and they're praying, and they're worshiping, and they're waiting. (laughs) And something incredible happens. Something the disciples could not even have imagined takes place. Turn one page over to Acts 2. In Acts 2, we read in verses 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost arrived, the day that they celebrated the making of God's covenant people at, Is- at Sinai, when on that very same day, they were all gathered together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, catch this. The same fire that rested upon a bush and caused the bush to be on fire but not consumed now rests not upon a bush but upon humans. God has now lit humans on holy fire. And they begin to speak in all kinds of languages. It sits, this fire sits over the tops of believers and witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus and now they're enabled with a miraculous gift to communicate to a variety of people from a variety of backgrounds, the praises of God. Now the crowd is wondering, what, what's, what is this all about? What is happening? Maybe they're drunk. It's early in the morning. It's like 9 o'clock in the morning. Peter is, 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 is thinking about this. He's taking this all in. And, and it's Peter that turns to the crowd to explain how this is the result of the resurrection of Jesus. It's Peter that, 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 that it say, hey guys, look, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. They, they're, they're not drunk. That that's not what's happening here. Rather, this is the fulfillment of what God had promised through the prophet Joel that in the last days, God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters would prophesy, and your old men would dream visions, dream dreams, and have visions. And He says, "Man, this is this is exactly what God's been promising to do. This is what He said He would do all along." So Peter's answer to them makes clear that God has been planning this moment since before the foundations of the earth. He quotes the psalmist David in speaking of the resurrection, verse 27 of chapter 2, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. We know that David's already dead. So the psalm, this prophetic psalm, is not about David. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would see one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, the King that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, he is currently the king sitting on a throne and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. (laughs) This is awesome. The story does not end with the resurrection and the ascension. Now, God, in the same way that he inhabited Jesus, now inhabits the church and the kingdom, the members of the kingdom. They are lit afire with the same kind of fire that was on the burning bush. They are God's kingdom people at Pentecost on the day when God formed Israel as a covenant people. Now God forms the church as his covenant community. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see how profound this is? God is fulfilling his promise all along. This is amazing. The question that comes to the minds of the hearers in that audience, it's like, wait a minute, okay. So, we, we killed? We killed the king? But they, now he's alive, and now he's on the throne in heaven, ruling and reigning what do we do right what do we do notice verse 30 uh, 37 now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do and peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit in other words god has already Taking this into account. He forgives you. Repent, turn to him, and now give yourself to the king. So Peter's answer comes, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. And the people of Jerusalem knew what that meant. For for them, the the practice of proselyte baptism was a regular occurrence. If you were born outside of the house of Israel, you were not an ethnic Jew, you could convert, if you had come to believe that Yahweh was God, you could convert through a ceremony that was called proselyte baptism. And so the way that that looked is that you shaved your entire body so that you looked like a newborn baby. And then you would go down and you'd be dunked down into the water in these mikvahs. You would be immersed in these mikvahs, these baptismals that were at the foot of the temple. And in doing so, here's what's happening. You make yourself look like a baby. You go down into the waters now. And it's like you're being born again. You're being rebirthed. Your old national identity is being shed. And you are adopting a new national identity under God's covenant community of Israel at that time. Now, here's what's happening. Peter is saying to people who are already Jewish it's time to get rid of your former identity as strictly being Jewish and now you're going to come into a new covenant community and you're going to embrace a new identity under King Jesus a new kingdom, a new nation. Oh man. Your old life is done away with. And you have a new allegiance, a new set of priorities, and a new way of living. Under the Messiah, Jesus. Now the church at this time explodes. 3,000 people hear the message of Jesus. Remember, this is not his history for them. This is current events. It happened in their city just a few days ago. They know they, they know. That all of this is true. That all of this has taken place. And so 3,000 people respond to the call of the gospel and the church explodes from just a small house church to a mega church. But because the Holy Spirit is working in the heart of these people, they begin to hang out with each other as often as possible. They begin to share meals. Talk with one another about the teachings of Jesus. They they go, okay, what did he mean when he said that? And what does that mean for us? If if this is direction for us as members of this kingdom on how to live, then, then what do we do with the teachings of Jesus to implement it in our lives? They began to live under the authority and the teaching of King Jesus. They met from house to house, shared meals, shared their possessions. And began to live it all out with one another in community. And in this environment, God began to do more kingdom prophesied miracles. People are getting healed. Lame people get raised up. In chapter 3, there's a beggar who lays at the gate of beautiful The gate called beautiful, and Peter just looks at him and says, I don't have any silver or gold, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, pulls him to his feet. The guy starts walking. Same kinds of miracles that were happening when the kingdom was initiated under Jesus are now happening under the authority of the apostles in the book of Acts. And they they see there's a continuation. God is still working. He is still moving. Now, that does not mean that the church was without opposition, As with other moments in in the history of the world, the enemy is at work to try and stop this movement. In fact, all the opposition that we face today in the church is the same opposition that the early church faced. It can be broken down into some of the following categories for those of you who are note-takers. Internal opposition. Internal opposition. That is, problems within the church, within the ecclesia, within the kingdom. One of the first problems that pops up pops up in Acts chapter 5 where there's opposition through corruption. Opposition through corruption. Ananias and Sapphira are lying. They're trying to look spiritual but they're not actually giving themselves to God. And God intervenes to purify the church in that moment. And Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead. Opposition through complexity. By the time you get to chapter 6 in the book of Acts, what well, you find out that is that there's some internal division because some of the widows are being cared for better than others. And the church is so big and so massive, the apostles are having a hard time like trying to keep track of things. And so they pray, they get direction from the Lord, and they separate out some men to be in charge of that so that the apostles can devote themselves to the word of God and to prayer. And they organize a little bit. They begin saying, okay, to care for the people that God keeps adding to his kingdom, we're going to have to be organized in how we do it. And they, they have opposition through complexity. Opposition through complacency. It takes 10 chapters in the book of Acts for the early church to realize that it's not just about the Jews. You realize that? Ever think about that? They're like, yay, we're in the kingdom and nobody else is. (laughs) And God's like, no, no. Remember Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth? And so God begins to send people out. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, we see that God has sent them also to Samaria. And revival breaks out there. Opposition through conflict. Again, on the internal opposition, there's opposition through conflict. Like the time that Paul and Barnabas are in a heated debate and they separate ways. Like like the times where they had to meet together for the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 and they were fighting out some theological, some doctrinal issues. And and, and they go, man... There's conflict here, but we, we have to find a way to work our way through this. See, the church had internal opposition right from the very beginning. But God kept working it out. Paul and Barnabas end the story, friends. Right? Paul writes to Barnabas at the end of his life. There was, ex, or there was internal opposition. There was also external opposition. There was opposition through institutional religion. Remember, Paul is dogged all throughout his ministry by this group of Judaizers who follow him around his great trouble wherever he goes. Remember in in, in Acts chapter 4, how the apostles were arrested and they were told or commanded that they couldn't preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter looks at, at, at the Sanhedrin and he says, guys, look. You tell me what you think is right. Should I listen to God or should I listen to man? All I can do is just talk about what I've seen and heard. I'm just telling you, I saw Jesus. He's raised from the dead. This man was healed in his name. I'm just going to have to keep talking about him. I, I don't know. Now, did that make him afraid? Yeah, it made him afraid. At the end of the book of Acts, or excuse me, at the end of Acts chapter 4, that same chapter... The apostles get back together and they go, okay, God, we're kind of afraid. We need boldness. Send boldness. And God fills them with the Holy Spirit. He causes an earthquake. He shakes the earth underneath of them and they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin speaking with boldness even more so in the community. So there was opposition through institutional religion. There was opposition through civil authorities. Remember, Herod kills James in Acts chapter 12. The Philippian jail episode with, uh, with Paul in, in, in Acts 16. He got arrested in Corinth in uh, Acts 18. Arrested in Ephesus in Acts 19. Arrested in the temple in Acts 21. He stood trial before Felix in Acts 24. Trial before Festus in Acts 25. Trial before Agrippa and Bernice. And on into Rome as the book of Acts finishes out. They had problems with civil authorities. They were in conflict In those places, there was opposition through persecution. Remember the stoning of Stephen? Remember Paul was sitting right there, holding the jackets of those who were throwing the rocks. The execution of James in chapter 12, and countless beatings of Paul and the apostles, to which they responded oftentimes by singing praises and thanking God that they were worthy to suffer. For the kingdom when they would get locked up God would send an angel in an earthquake to open the doors <laughs> he would give them wisdom and defense he would lead them through that there was opposition through persecution there was opposition through difficulty like the countless trials that the church suffered from famine Acts chapter 11 problems with travel in Acts chapter 6 Paul, or 16 Paul intended to go uh, into another region and ended up being blockaded and had to go to Macedonia instead, God called them over there there were, there were problems in travel storms, shipwrecks opposition, and just regular old difficulty in life in the life of the church that was present in that time add to that spiritual opposition every town that they went to, demon possessed people were being set free the demons were not stoked on that riots were stirred up all kinds of spiritual warfare was happening in the presence of idolatry and and throughout the book of acts you see internal opposition external opposition and spiritual opposition all coming against the work of god but here's what i want you to see who wins god why because you see back in genesis god made a promise I'm going to build my kingdom. And I'm going to crush the head of Satan. And then, with the disciples, Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And now, as the kingdom is being built, there is opposition all around But this is the story of God. And God wins. He wins, guys. That's it. Listen, coronavirus is not going to stop the work of God. Masks are not going to stop the work of God. Nothing is going to stop. Listen, having to replace a senior pastor is not going to stop the work of God. The church has survived in generation after generation. It started with 120 people in an upper room and it's moved to millions across the earth right now. There has been doctrinal conflict, conflict within, there's conflict without, there's spiritual warfare that's happening, but God wins. Amen? Man, you turn... You turn to the book of Revelation, and that's what it's all about. You see the unfolding drama of history. You see this beast trying to swallow up the woman and her child, representative of Israel and, and Christ. You see this conflict happening be- between the Antichrist and, 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 and Satan himself against the saints. And you see the saints crying out and saying, Oh, how long, O oh Lord? How long? And what you see is God winning. That's what you see. That is the hope of the gospel. God wins. I want to close with one final illustration. I want to drive the point home with this. It was fall, and a steamer was heading down the mighty Mississippi. But the fog rolled in, and it was so thick, the people down on the lower deck were in the thick of it, and they were freaked out because it seemed like the guy steering the ship was going faster and they could barely see out in front of them maybe maybe 20 yards and so they, they, were, they were all reacting differently. There were some people that were forming little committees and like, we need to take over the ship. We need to shut this guy down. There was others who were hanging off the bow of the ship trying to see through the fog and prognosticate what was coming. There were, there were people freaking out, people who were afraid, saying, put on your life jackets. It's all bad. It's all bad. So <laughs> finally, the committee gets itself together and they, they go, okay. Let's go up, let's tell the captain he needs to pull over the ship. We're, we're all going to die. This whole thing is going to wreck. And so they make their way up the first set of stairs and up the second set of, set of stairs and they get to the third deck up where the captain is steering the ship. And you know what they found? He had just enough elevation, he was over the fog. He could see fine. Guys, the church has always been opposed. There has always been conflict. There has always been trouble. It has always gone down that way. But Jesus is steering the ship. We are in safe hands. The plan of God cannot be thwarted. And there is peace in that. Amen. Mitch is going to lead us in worship. As he does so, let's pray. Father, Thank you for this reminder in your word. God, you are sovereign over history. No matter what it looks like here on the deck, you see it all. You're the faithful captain who's steering the ship. And once again, today, from the heart, we thank you that you're in control. We give our anxieties and our fears over to you. And we trust you to steer the ship. So God, be glorified in our faith. Be glorified in our calm obedience. Be glorified in our trust in you. In the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.